Hello, and welcome to episode 162 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Robert Randolph. This week, host Christian Romney talks with Craig and Dara about getting smarter and making stuff, Kevl, YouTube makers, flight sim tools, and more. But before we jump into the episode, I'd like to remind everyone that we are hiring. Check out cognitech.com slash careers.html or reach out to us at jobs at cognitech.com. But for now, sit back and open your ears, your heart, and your mind to Christian and Craig on episode 162 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everyone. Today is Friday, June 18th. 2021, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Christian Romney. It's my great pleasure to host the show today and to bring you today's guest, someone with whom longtime listeners of the podcast will be very familiar, my friend Craig and Dara. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming on. I'm, oh, I'm no, so really. So it's my pleasure. It's very cool to be here again and been really thrilled that you've been carrying forward the show and doing a great job with it. I put a lot of energy into it, so it's been really awesome to see that you are doing such a great job continuing the show. That is the collective you, I take it. Really, there's so many folks here that are involved with the production of the show, and you're, they're all great. Scotty does an amazing job as host, and Russ, who really just shepherds the entire thing. We have folks that help with the editing and writing up the, the show notes as well. So Kim Foster. Takes a village. Yeah, it sure, it sure does. Don't want to leave anybody out. If I get to naming people, I'm, I'm going to exclude someone. So maybe I'll quit <laughs> while I'm ahead. Now, I'm well aware. I've said before, I would have, this show would have stopped at about episode 20 if people hadn't stepped up and done a ton of work. It is uh, surprisingly a lot of work, which maybe we'll get Actually, it's a, it's a great segue into another topic. But before we, we go there, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you're doing these days professionally. So you're you're still at Kevl now, right? That's correct. Uh, yeah. Formerly AdZerk. Yep. Formerly AdZerk. And so I've been dying to ask you, what prompted the name change? And has the sort of the direction of the business changed at all? Has it impacted the kind of work you do on a day-to-day basis? So maybe tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So the mission of the business has not changed. I think what really happened was that our marketing department, and I actually have a lot of a lot of trust and faith in our marketing department. They've done an amazing job in a bunch of ways. And so when they said, hey, we're going to change the name of the company, I was like, okay. Because of course, to me, it's not that I don't really care. Like, it's not something that matters to me very much. But I was like, okay, that's they're saying it's a good idea. I, I trust them. And we did it. And the reason that they gave was basically that it's a lot easier to build the brand that we know we're building around that name. The the problem with AdZerk, it's a good name, but it, it tended to make people think that we were an ad network, like a, a place mm-hmm. where you could go to purchase ads, I which see. is not what we do. What we do, actually, if I can segue into this real quick, because this was yeah. something that I had explained to me, I think it's pretty awesome. Working in advertising, it is not uncommon for me to get a little bit of the polite <laughs> silence when I say I work at an ad tech company, because I can tell that what's going through people's minds is, oh, gosh advertising that's evil. And what's great is I actually think what we're doing is a good thing because the traditional way that advertising uh, works, and first of all, I you, you have to start with the premise that advertising is a reasonable thing to do. Like to show ads is, you know, a way for people that are providing a service to sure. make money. And I definitely agree that is a legitimate activity. Mm-hmm. Like I go to 
all sorts of websites that I wouldn't pay for, but that I enjoy their products. Okay, great. So assuming you're going to show ads, traditionally, it's a three kind of a three way relationship where you have a website like catvideos.com, you have a person who's using that website, and then you have, let's face it, Google or Facebook, they're 80% of the market. And you, right. so you have this three-way relationship where the incentives are misaligned, right? Because like I have a relationship with catvideos.com. They know that I like cat videos and they give them to me and I agree to look at ads in return. But there's this sort of third party in the room. I have to have a relationship with Google or Facebook. They have to have a relationship with Google or Facebook. And it just winds up aligning the incentives in a weird way because mm. they don't really care about my relationship with catvideos.com, but that's important. And so what Kevl does is we sell a service that people can use so that they can own that relationship entirely. So what our product really is, it's a bunch of things, but you know, if I want to simplify it all the way down, it is about making a decision about what ad to show. You have a thousand ads you could show if you show this one, you might make a thousandth of a penny. And if you show this one, you might make three cents. Several orders of magnitude difference there, right? right? And you have approximately tens of milliseconds to make that decision when someone comes to your website. Mm -hmm. And the difference in which one you choose is complicated because it's not just how much the price is, but you have to right. consider things like, have I shown this person this ad 10 times already? Mm -hmm. Do I have a budget that I need to not go over because... It may be that if I show this ad, I make three cents, but not if <laughs> that advertiser mm. has already spent $20 with me, right? So there's all these things that go in and you got to figure all that out really fast. And that turns out to be hard. People will mm. often go about making their own ad server. This is not one person. Companies look at as companies grow and, right. and build a significant product with a, a major revenue aspect to their business being advertising then they often will build these things. And it takes a really long time because that problem is really hard. We have some really great people at Kevl who used to work at, at Cognitech. So we have Timmy mm -hmm. Wald and Paul DeGrandis and, you know, Larry Karnowski actually also works there. We, and we need really smart people because it is a really hard problem. <laughs> right. And what happens is by giving them this service, we've allowed them to take control of the relationship, right? Now it really is between you and catvideos.com because we're not involved. We have a relationship with the business, but it's about providing the decision engine. And we think that is a fundamental force for good to the extent where if you go to the Kevl website, you can actually see that our tagline, I'm not sure if it's up on there right now, I'd have to look, but at least for a while, we were saying, uh, take back the internet as like a motto for saying, we want to make advertising better. Everybody's like, advertising sucks. Okay, but it doesn't have to. Anyway, I'm sorry, that was very no, yeah, um, I, hard sell job or whatever, but I'm actually really quite excited to be able to do that. I like the idea of that of making the internet a better place. It just uh, appeals to me. That is really cool. And yeah, I totally grant the premise that advertising is a, it can be a, a good and valuable thing. I mean, it, just think about the last time you were looking for some kind of product, but you, it might be the whole product genre might be new to you, right? Or unfamiliar. So right. for instance, when I was shopping around for a guitar and I, I just started learning guitar. I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> I want to <laughs> see what are guitar related products. And, you know, sometimes advertising is a great way to discover that. And so, yeah, that's pretty neat. And I, I remember a couple of, an, another former Cognitech or Relevancer was working with you as well. Alan Dipert, I remember was. That's the, right. Yeah. So yep, you yeah, Alan left shortly after I started, but yep, we had him as well. There were some interesting projects that had open source projects 
that had come out of the professional work that they were doing for now Kennel. Are those still under development? Do you all still use them? Do you have other projects that you're working on? Or So I think you're referring to things like Boot and Hoplon and Javelin. Is that the, the set exactly. of things you're talking about? Yeah. Yep. Um, so me, neither Misha nor Alan, who were the big people behind those things, they, they, neither of them works at Kevl anymore. Internally, we are, we're moving away from Boot. It's like a lot of things, right? Like the world kind of moves on. Boot precedes Depths.Eden. So right. Depths.Eden gets to take advantage of all of the things that Boot got a chance to try out. I think you could say similar things about Hoplon, which is not to say that those things don't work. It's just that right now, our, our we actually do still use Hoplon extensively. Our UI is written uh, using Hoplon, written in script. It sits on top of Hoplon and, and Javelin. We've thought a bit about what the future looks like. And long term, it's probably not those things, right. simply because there's a lot of value in using the things that lots of other people are using. And, you know, just like with Boot, the world got a chance to get smarter and Hoplon and Javelin are pretty pretty small projects by the standards of something like React or Redux or whatever, right? Like th- those things right. are all very well contributed to. There's a lot of, of effort behind them. I think if you ask, if you come back to Kevl in five years and say, are you still using Hoplon? Are you still using Javelin? Are you still using Boot? The answer will probably be no, but it's not because they're broken. It's just the nature of kind of web development is you have to keep moving or you wind up on an island. And like I said, it's not that those things are are um, inherently bad or broken. It's just the nature of web development, right? Sure. Yeah, I understand that. Okay, cool. So mental note, in five years, we're going to have you back on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully before then, but... Happy anytime, uh, yeah. You talked about getting smarter. That's a great segue to this <laughs> next thing that I want to talk to you about, which is this really cool new project that you've started, Get Smarter and Make Stuff. So yeah. tell us about this. I, I've started watching uh, some of the content, the videos you put up, the shop tour, the hybrid CNC router, which was pretty cool. And I'm hooked. So I'm a subscriber now. I appreciate that. That's cool. I'm, um, I'll just start at the beginning, if that makes sense. For sure. So just in thinking about what I'm into, like what drives me, what do I want to do with my free time? Because there's lots of professionally, I have a set of goals, I have a, have a family and I have values and objectives there. But in terms of just like my spare time, like my fun time, mm-hmm. it has really always been the case that it's been about two things. It's been about learning and making. And those two things are very tightly connected for me. A lot of times, for instance, I might make something purely because I want to know how to do it. And I don't actually even care about the artifact. I've made plenty of things where I get done and I'm like, why did I make this? And the answer really was because you wanted to see if you could and not because you wanted to possess the object that that comes out of it. But that a lot of my learning in the other direction is driven by wanting to make something. Oh, I want to make this thing. Okay, why, what do I need to learn or do that? So the kind of intersection of those two things has for a long time been, you know, I've had this sort of saying, I want to I wanna learn and make or get smarter and make cool stuff or whatever formulation I had. I finally was just sitting around one day and I'm like, I wonder what URLs are available on this in this space. And it turned out a bunch of them were, um, you <laughs> know, various combinations of learning and making and getting smarter. But the one I kind of liked the best was get smarter and make stuff. So I'm like, okay, I'll go to hover and register get smarter and make stuff.com. Okay, uh, now I guess I better do something with it. I'm not joking. Like it <laughs> literally was, I just decided to get the URL and then I'm like, gosh, there probably ought to be something at that. 
And so I spent a little time figuring out how am I going to set up a website, eventually decided on WordPress. And I started pushing a few articles out. Like I think I wrote one about um, getting started in woodworking. And I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. But I've been spending a lot of time on YouTube uh, recently. It's funny. I always, so YouTube is awesome. I think pretty much everybody knows this, but I feel like I came to that really late, like a couple years ago. I think I was laid up with a back injury and I just picked up the computer and started watching YouTube, which is something I hadn't done. And was absolutely blown away because, of course, as literally everyone else in the universe probably already knew, there's just so much amazing, high-quality content out there that it's just an infinite place to, to learn and to explore and to be entertained and educated. I've been watching YouTube a bunch for you know, the intervening time, and one of the channels that I really like is a gentleman named James Clow. His channel is Clow42, C-L-O-U-G-H-42. He's uh, a machinist. He does metalworking stuff with a lathe and a mill, metal lathe and a metal mill. And I don't know why, but like his videos are particularly well-produced. There's certainly others that are also equally well-produced, but there was something about his videos that made me want to make ones like them. And so I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I should have a YouTube channel as well. So I started doing that. And then I was sitting there one day and I'm like, get smarter and make stuff. What if that was a podcast? That would almost not write itself, but you only have to have two questions for a website called Get Smarter and Make Stuff. You just ask people, what are you learning and what are you making? And I really liked how well that went with the rest of the notions of the site. And I thought it would make a really good show. And I thought that it's basically infinite. Like you could always have a show talking to pretty much just about anybody, I think. Obviously, I'll probably focus on people that are particularly into the kinds of making that I am maybe. But I mean, right. you can walk up to anybody and say, hey, what are you learning? And they will probably tell you something super interesting. Or what are you making? And they will probably tell you something super interesting. And what I found is even more than that, they will also talk about how these things intersect. And it just happens naturally. Like I don't have to ask the question what are you learning? What are you making? And hey, do those two things cross over at all? It's just every single show so far, we've pretty much wound up in the in the crossover. If you took and kind of laid it out as a timeline over the 50 minutes of the show, it's not like you could, you know, take a marker and color in red where we're talking about learning and a marker and color in blue where we're talking about making. But like most of the show is yeah. purple, right? Like it's both things. And so that's where I'm at right now. I've done a bunch of videos and I just put one out just before we got on. And then I've done a few... Like, six podcast episodes now and I'm having a good time and uh, plan to keep on doing it. It is a, you know, part-time thing for me, so I'm not cranking them out left and right, but I think I'm doing a decent right. pace and having a good time doing it. That's fun. There's, um, so what is uh, today's video about? Just out of curiosity. Just uh, so there's the, yeah, there's this project I've been doing. Uh, again, I referenced uh, James Clow. One of the really cool projects that he has done is this thing called an electronic lead screw. And I, I can explain if you think that would help. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a metal lathe is a tool that turn, spins a piece of metal and then you address it with a tool that cuts away parts. So you wind up with something circular. It may have varying diameters, if you can picture that. And the way that works is the tool is actually, because in metalworking, because the forces are very high, right? It takes a lot of pressure to cut metal. Everything has to be very rigid. And so unlike on a wood lathe, where you would typically hold the tool in your hands, on a metal lathe, the, the cutting bit is affixed to a very rigid carriage that can traverse either left to right, which would be along the axis of rotation, or in and out, which would be radial with respect to the rotation of the uh, workpiece. And so 
that's all fine. And there are wheels that you can use to either move it in or out or uh, move it left to right because that allows you to be very, very accurate. And you can have a wheel where you can turn it and move things a thousandth of an inch at a time, which is a sort of a typical tolerance for when you're doing metalworking as you're often working down to the thousandth of an inch. Okay. The thing is, though, you get better results if you can turn those wheels at a very steady rate. And of course, that's difficult for humans to do. And so there's this really clever thing, which is that instead of turning the wheel that traverses the carriage left to right along the axis of rotation, which you would use to take a part and make it smaller in diameter, you'd cut Mm -hmm. along the part and go down to some point, maybe you'd leave a shoulder, but you're turning to a diameter. Instead of doing that by hand, there's actually a screw that runs the length of the lathe that is hooked through a series of gears, typically, to the spindle, the part that turns the work. And then you can connect the carriage to that thing with a lever. And so what you do is you throw that lever and now the carriage is moving along typically from right to left at a steady pace because it's being turned by the same motor that's turning the workpiece. And a typical relationship would be that you would move, say, five thousandth of an inch along the bed for every rotation of the workpiece. And you can adjust that up and down to get different results. Like typically you're looking for the result to be very smooth and that may require that you move slower or very occasionally faster. Does that all make sense as an explanation so far? Oh yeah, totally. Okay, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I'm also a fan of watching some of these channels. So I I do have some, I I have the benefit of having seen some of this stuff before. Yeah, I didn't know what an electronic lead screw was at all. So please continue that. Yep. You're right. Okay, so this is all very well and good. And there's one other super important thing you can do with these things, which is rather than make a relationship between the workpiece and the carriage being like five thousandth of an inch per rotation, you can make it be something more like, say, one sixteenth of an inch per rotation. Now, why is that important? Because it lets you make screws. It lets you make threads. And for reasons that I can't really do justice to on this podcast – Screws and threads are like the basis of our entire civilization. (laughs) Oh, sure. It turns out that all of the precision that we get out of these machines, I talked about working down to a thousandth of an inch, that is critical for modern manufacturing of basically anything. And that precision comes out of the ability to make threads on screws, because then you can do things like make a lathe where you turn a crank and one rotation of that crank moves something, say, um, a 16th of an inch. And so you can say, well, if I, I can only move it a quarter of a turn. And now it's, would that be a 64th of an inch? You get a lot of precision by taking advantage of the properties of a screw. So cutting threads is like a critical, both historical and in terms of just like making things in a machine shop. It's really important. Now, here's the thing. It's amazing what you can buy for a home shop these days. The tools that you can pick up for reasonable money, although obviously I'm very fortunate in that I work in an industry where I can afford toys. That's not true for everybody. But for me, at least I could go and I could easily afford to buy one of these tools that can, you know, operate down at a thousandth of an inch. It's quite amazing that you can do that. But the truth is that these machines vary greatly in quality and capacity. Metalworking machines are considerably more expensive than woodworking Mm -hmm. machines. You can spend a ton of money on a really fancy table saw or whatever. But because they have to be super rigid, you have to throw a lot of cast iron, a lot of metal, and a lot of precision involved in the manufacture, so they can be very expensive. So, of course, right. I'm a hobbyist. I bought a pretty cheap lathe as, as metal lathes go. Okay. Right. So, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that in order to go from that carriage traversing at five thousandths of an inch per revolution to one sixteenth of an inch 
per revolution, which I would need to do if I was going to say, turn something down to a diameter and then put 16 threads per inch in it. I have to monkey around up in the end of the lathe, changing gears out. And it's a pain. It's like mm. really messy and I do it wrong half the time and you get all full of grease and then you got to put it back together. And then I drop the screws on the floor 16 times and so forth. And so James Clow, I, I came across this thing on his YouTube channel called an electronic lead screw. He didn't invent the idea, but what he did do is show his development of one for his lathe. And then he sold a kit. So you could watch his videos and do it yourself, or you could you know, buy the kit from him, which I did. And what it does is it says, okay, instead of driving the lead screw with gears that are connected to the motor, let's introduce a computer. And as you and I both know, generally introducing computers does not solve problems. It creates problems. But in this case, it actually does because you put a sensor on the spindle so you know how fast it's turning. And then you connect that up to a microcontroller. And then you connect that microcontroller to a motor. And you connect that motor to the lead screw. You have a little control panel. And so now you can just push a button and say, hey, as the spindle rotates, advance the lead screw this many turns to create a relationship between the spindle and the carriage that's five thousandth of an inch per rotation. Or push a few buttons, and now it's moving one sixteenth of an inch per rotation. So I can flip between threading and turning to a diameter and threading at a different pitch and finish passes and, and rough passes and all this stuff just by pushing buttons. And really, it is seconds instead of 20 minutes or more to switch between these operations, which is just super wonderful. Yeah, but that is really cool. It's cool. And of course, the real reason I, I built it is because I just wanted to. <laughs> yeah, and you get to build it, right? That's what's cool. There was so much cool stuff to talk about there. You reminded me when you talked about the, the screw, I had, I recently picked up a book on Amazon called How Machines Work. I think mm. it's the U.S. Navy publishes this. And it was like seven bucks for this super cool little manual and it talks about i think it's five or six i haven't only gotten to like chapter three but i think it's five or six fundamental machines that pretty much everything that we use is some combination of one mm -hmm. of the lever is one of the fundamental ones the screw of course block and tackle which is pulley and rope for mm -hmm. land lovers so yeah the pretty cool stuff i'm on this Chapter three, I think, is the screw now. So it'll yeah. be, I think it'll make a little bit more sense too when I pick up the book again and start going through it. So for our, for your listeners, the the metal lathe is the is said to be the one machine in the shop that can make itself. Like it's a mm. fundamental. You you, <laughs> it was just sitting here thinking about that, and I'm like, it's like the Turing machine of of shop tools in that sense. Yeah. It's, it's sort of a universal machine. Very cool machine, and this. The screw cutting capability, as I implied, is, is just so fundamental when you start. There's a great YouTube series called, I can't remember what it's called now. I, I, it's basically the history of the lathe. And the mm. name of the channel is escaping me, but I'll shoot it to you. And maybe you can put it in the show notes if you like. But uh, sure, that's some, it's just a super cool. And so I, I, I guess I'll just stop by saying I highly encourage people to look into the history of the metal lathe. It's, it's really interesting. So I love, I confess, I, I am also a latecomer to just watching YouTube as a source of entertainment or a vehicle for learning as well. I think I learn goodness, pretty much everything these days, anything from cooking to playing the guitar or yeah. you name it. I go to YouTube first and it's pretty cool. I, it's also something else that struck me. 
about your get smarter and make stuff and learning and making. It's like it's the theory and the practice. And whether it's making, definitely the active component is, is just doing, right? There's only so much you can learn by just absorbing and mm. theorizing. You you really do have to hit the practical aspect of it and get out and try to do the thing that you're trying to learn. Or at least for me, that's been my experience. Certainly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, and it can be intimidating too. Yeah. I, I think one of the, the things that a lot of the folks, I think, especially that started tinkering around with computers when we did, is we we're not really afraid to break stuff. Yeah. I just started learning to weld. <laughs> oh, wow. MIG yeah. or TIG or... Actually, I just bought a little flux core machine. It's uh, They're very inexpensive. I think I paid a little less than $200 for this one. And I thought, okay, you know, you can only weld steel. So no mm. aluminum, no stainless, whatever, mild steel, I guess I should say. But I thought, you know, this would be a good way to get started. And and I got to say, like I was saying, I read a bunch, and but then it's, you got to go and do it. And it mm -hmm. was a little intimidating, especially there are significant safety concerns. The metal is very hot in excess of 2000 degrees and there's 100 plus amps going on, but it is super fun. <laughs> I just started, I mean, I made my first welds like a week ago, just finished my first stupid little project with the ugliest welds you've ever seen in your entire life, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> That is something I've always wanted to try. I have this really bizarre bucket list of just cool, hands-on shop-related activities that I'd like to accomplish. We never had shop in my high school. I don't mm -hmm. know. Did you take shop? Yeah. So I went to a Catholic school that was, mm -hmm. was did not have very many facilities at the either the elementary or the high school level. We did get to take shop, though, because somehow there was an arrangement where in seventh and eighth grade, we would be bussed over to the, what was called at the time, middle school, I guess now they call it, no, they still call it middle school, maybe they yeah. call it junior high then. Anyway, they would send us over to the sixth and seventh grade, the public school, and they had a decent shop so we could take a shop. There there might, you know, now that you think, sorry, this is all, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a million years old, so you're, you're asking me to remember <laughs> back into the 80s, but but I, I didn't take shop in high school, but I did get a chance to take it in, in middle school in seventh grade or so, so got some exposure. But my dad also always had tools and was an engineer and, and would build things. And so I, I didn't, I wouldn't say that I spent a boatload of time as a kid swinging a hammer and nailing things together or whatever. But somehow between that exposure in school and the exposure to my dad doing stuff, I've never been afraid to make stuff like I made the loft, the bed that I slept in in college, for instance. That's cool. Practical. Yeah. I watch a lot of, this, this is weird. Like I, sometimes I just watch it purely for the enjoyment. There is just something relaxing about watching some of this stuff for me. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's a little weird, but there's this channel that I love watching hand tool rescue. There's another one called Blackbeard projects and they just get in the shop and they'll pick up a tool that maybe they got at a garage sale that was sitting in the back of somebody's garage for god knows how long and it's this ancient thing or they'll pick it up at a flea market or who knows like these finds and they usually look just terrible like they're in terrible condition when they pick them up and are all rusted and just to see them restored to something that approximates the original condition is just is something cool about that i don't know i could yeah. watch that for hours i agree one of the things that I think is really interesting is, and I'm sure somewhere someone has done a study about this or written something thoughtful, but how common it is for those, for the ones at least that I find to be more meditative a little bit, like which is what you're mm -hmm. alluding to, I think, yeah. is how often you don't see the person. You maybe see their hands. That's right? so true. And the work, which is, I don't really have a good 
explanation for what it is, what that means. I feel like that means something. You know what I'm trying to wow, say? Wow, like, that is really, I, I had never even stopped to think about that, but it's so true. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them, they don't even talk, which is another level entirely. Like you just see the work and their hands and maybe occasionally a splash of explanatory text. But uh, anyway, I, I don't know what, again, I don't really know what to make out of that other than to observe it and find it fascinating. That is really cool. So that's true. This one that I mentioned, Blackbeard Projects, a bunch of his videos are that way. He doesn't speak a word. It, I was like 12 videos in before I ever figured out <laughs> what he looked like. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. There's another phenomenon too, which I know almost nothing about where they whisper. Yeah. That's another thing. It's ASMR, I believe. You're oh, that's to. what it is. That, yeah, exactly. That's right. I, I wonder what that's all, all about. Do you know more about that? I, I know a little tiny bit about it, but probably oh. not enough to say anything intelligent. I know that there's a, a psychological phenomenon that some ex some people experience with respect to a content that's presented in that way. I haven't really looked into it at all. I just I, I just know that some people experience a certain sensation, which they seek out. I, I don't really know more than that, though. I'd, I'm sure that Wikipedia has a page on it. <laughs> wow, that's really cool. <laughs> there you go we're gonna start a new podcast me and you we're just gonna whisper back and forth for an hour every time oh fun that's really cool this is this is your new project your new mm -hmm. hobby and you're building things making things with your hands but also it's kind of cool to see how you bridge the shop world and the computer world with a project like this one i think that's really neat but there are other projects too i was like Looking at, let me go to Craig's GitHub page and see what he's, what kind of things he's been, you know, doing. And you have another hobby, I, I think, or at least you used to. I know we've talked about this in the past, but you're really into a flight sim called Falcon, if I'm not mistaken. That's Is that, correct. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's still a thing you do. So I haven't, <laughs> it's a gaming clan, right? Like when you get uh -huh. right down to it, it's of the same category as somebody playing Fortnite with friends or whatever like that. But when it's its own subgenre of that, and when we refer to the activity, we call it flying. It's mm, right. simulated, obviously. Sure. And it's for entertainment purposes. But so the reason I say that is because I was about to just blurt out, I haven't flown in some time, <laughs> which when I thought about it, I was like, not really anyway. But no, I haven't been active. I haven't taken to the virtual skies in quite some time. One of the things that really kind of made that happen is that when my older daughter entered middle school, it shifted the family schedule because of the way the school schedule works. And the flights tend to be later at night, nine o'clock. Uh, starting at nine o'clock, a mission would last three or four hours. And so you're getting done at 1am. And I tell you, because it's a combat flight simulator, right. we're not just like flying a 747 from Chicago to Boston. Not that there's anything wrong with that. People do that and they really enjoy it and yeah. yay for them. But I'm flying an F-16 and people are shooting missiles at me and you have <laughs> the most unbelievable amount of sensory overload you've ever experienced in your life. There's, It's astonishing. It's a fairly faithful simulator. They've never flown a real F-16, but I actually have flown with people who have. The, this is the level of the group that wow. I was flying with was that we did have not a huge number, but more than one active or former fighter pilot in the wing. It's a, the clan is called a wing, a virtual fighter wing. And you could ask those guys and say, it was, how is it? They're like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's a really pretty faithful simulation. And man, I tell you, it is, you're managing a lot of sensor input. You're managing operating the aircraft. You're flying in formation. You have to communicate on the radio. You have to keep where things are in your head straight. And it is, it's intense. It's really intense. You do these missions, three or four hours, whatever, 
maybe three hours, something like that. You get done at 1 a.m. and then uh, there's no way I could sleep. <laughs> right, you're, you're totally too, wired at that point. Too wired, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I have not been flying, but I think the thing you're referring to is a little bit of a tool that I made for the flight sim community that I'm part of that is sort of a mission management tool. It's got some stuff in there for kind of figuring out where the enemy forces are and planning your missions. And it actually came out of a weather generator that I wrote. I think I might even have talked yeah. about it on, yeah. on the show at some point. Neat, yeah, I saw the weather generator and the virtual mission tools and yeah there was one that caught my eye too the carrier landing grading tool yes so yeah Go do ahead. f-16s actually land on aircraft carriers is no. that a thing no okay uh, all right this no. one threw me off <laughs> i vaguely recall there was at some point an f-16n naval variant that maybe there's been a couple carrier landings but no it's an air forest aircraft it, right it, takes off and lands at we don't land up postage stamps the way those navy guys do um anyway no but the reason that it exists is that the simulator although it's called falcon for the f-16 fighting falcon does support the ability to fly other aircraft although they're not as well modeled one of them is the f-18 and the wing i used to belong to had a significant number of pilots who wanted to fly the f-18 which does operate off of uh, aircraft carriers And they just asked me, they said, hey, you know, there's this thing for this other simulator called, I don't know what it's called, but the person on an AVA boat that's responsible for managing incoming aircraft, talking the pilots onto the correct glide path, because it's very difficult to land on an aircraft carrier, as you might imagine. Sure. Total side note. So one of the things about landing on a a Navy aircraft carrier, the recovery uh, runway is angled about 30 degrees. I don't remember some amount off of the axis of the ship right ship is moving into the wind to allow the recovery speed to be slower what that means is that as you're looking at the runway it's moving left to right in 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 addition to up and down in addition to up and down it may be pitching as well but you have to fly to where the the deck is going to be it's an utterly crazy i've done it a little bit in the simulator like i can land okay i'm not great at it but anyway it's very hard anyway so they asked me they said you know there's this software that will grade your landings because in the real Navy, the landing signal officer, the LSO, grades every landing. And there's a whole system for how they do it. You can you get marks for the you know various phases of the flight. You get we record which wire you hit because the way it works is the mm. aircraft has a hook behind it right. and there are four wires spread out over the deck. The hook snags the the Arrest one of the wires wire. and pulls the aircraft to a stop very quickly. So quickly, in fact, that as you land, you go to afterburner because you will not have enough time to react to a missed wire before you have to throttle up again and be accelerating in order not to fall off the nose of the ship. So wow. it's a it's a violent, crazy, sudden act. And the LSO grades every part of it. It's like it's a critical component of a Navy pilot's performance is that can they recover? How are they at flying in the glide path? And they had shown me this other tool and they said, can you make something like this? And I said, I think so. And I did. And it was a really interesting exercise in uh, data visualization. I, it's if a podcast, of course, it's an auditory medium. It's difficult to describe, but I had to I stole a lot of it, but I had to figure out how to represent where people were in relation to where they should be. And so there's an overhead view and a side view, and then a series of dots that show where you are with respect to the ideal glide path. And the dots turn red if you're very far out or yellow if you're a little far out. And it gives you a a grade sheet and all that good stuff. And, And they really liked it. And I think they might even still be using it. I haven't talked to those guys in a long time. 
And I know I keep saying guys, there's a sad fact that the flight sim community is almost 100% male. I, I've never mm. flown with a, a woman the entire uh, time that I was involved. So that's the reason for the gendered pronoun there. But but I think they're still using it, which is great. A, because I'm glad they find it useful. And B, because they haven't asked me to fix anything. So <laughs> must still be working for them. Or they that's gave pretty. up on it. I'm not really sure. Now, did you have to calculate the optimal glide path also as part of that? Or? Yeah, I mean, there's information out there because the people I'm flying with, they know that the glide path is a three degrees or I forget, I think it's three degrees. And so they said, well, yeah, this is the range. We actually tried to get uh, linked up with an actual LSO to get some advice on how good or bad the, the program was. We were never quite able to do that. We got as far as one Navy officer who said they were going to introduce us, but apparently the other person was too busy or not interested or whatever. But like I said, the, the people that I fly with are flying to a very high level. This is, it's the equivalent of like a softball league where people actually go and practice. Like right. they're playing at a really high level and they take it very seriously. It was for fun, for sure. Like we had a lot of fun, but you know, we strove really hard to be our best. And so the, these uh, F-18 pilots that I was working with had a really strong sense of the way things should work. They had spent probably several hundred hours studying available declassified Navy material to understand what was expected of real Navy pilots and translating that into what we could in the simulated environment. So it, wow. there was a lot of thought that went into it and we all took it pretty seriously, but it was super fun to... Wh one of the things that I actually really liked about it from a software standpoint was hmm. it was, well, I was still a consultant and the nature of consulting is... A lot of times you come in in the middle of a project or when there's a problem or whatever. This was greenfield development where I was connected directly with the stakeholders. Like I would have one-on-one -on -one meetings and say, here's what I did and what do you think about this? And they would have feedback about well, that should be more like this. And it was just something that I hadn't had very much of in my professional life at that point to be that directly connected to the the people that were going to be using my software to the point where I could, I don't know, it was just like, you get that sometimes, certainly in, in uh, professional life, but yeah. not as often as would be nice. And it was really cool to, to work with. And of course, they're really appreciative of it and everything. That was nice too. So it was, and, and then it worked for them, which was great. Like they got excited one day. They're like, there's a very high grade. It's, I forget what it is. It's uh, I, I can't, it's been so long since I wrote it. I can't remember the grading system, but one of them like after several hundred landings, they're like, I finally scored a five plus. I'm like, oh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. As you were talking here, I don't know why this popped into my head, but it occurred to me that I forgot to ask you a pretty important question to start off oh. the show. And that is to relate an experience of art. So that is like now going to appear in the middle of the conversation. That's okay. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice to break the rules. So right, just consider the rest of this my really long introduction. Exactly. It's going to be um, a four-hour episode today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up for it. I don't think your <laughs> listeners would be, but yeah. So it's funny, actually, because I, I, of all people, perhaps have no excuse to not expect this question. And I realized I forgot to think about it until today. But fortunately, I had an experience of art just before the show, actually. Uh, I oh. had been asked by a friend of ours, someone whose kids go to the same school as ours, if I would make some cornhole boards for her. It's interesting. It actually came out of the Get Smarter or Make Stuff website. I had posted a link to Facebook. She'd seen it. She's, oh, wow, that's cool that you like to make things. Would you mind 
making some cornhole boards for me. I'm like, sure, no problem. But why do you want cornhole boards? Well, she has this great nonprofit called Kids Give Back, which involves kids in doing a charitable work. So she has a summer camp, she has in-school programs, and she gets the kids to do like for real helping other people type stuff, which I think is wonderful on 10,000 levels. And she's like, well, I'm going to have them paint these and then they're going to donate them to another charity. I think it's CRI. I will, if you need it for the show notes, I can certainly give it a link to you. I believe they serve adults with physical and mental disabilities. So the kids took these cornhole boards that I made and they painted them. And just today I got to see pictures and I actually have them on the getsmarteromakestuff.com website. Oh, wow. The cornhole boards are all painted up and I got to see pictures of the kids too. I didn't post those for obvious reasons, but it was just yeah. really cool to see the kids had a great time with the project. You could tell that. And the boards are just wonderfully, colorfully painted. And the, I really, really like kid art. I always yeah. absolutely loved it when my kids would, even a scribble when they were like tiny, if they'd give it to me, that was like a prized possession for me. So it was just a really neat experience to, it was not very difficult, a cornhole board. It's three yeah. pieces of wood with a circle cut in it. Like it's not, it was no big deal for me to make those. It is interesting in that it pointed out to me that the ability to make things is not something that everybody has or even maybe thinks of themselves as able to do. I guess talking to your audience who makes software, we all have that experience of, hey, can you tell me how to change my password or whatever you're in non-technical? That's taken for granted for us, but of course that's not a given, but it's the same thing, you know, with the manufacture of, of physical objects. So it was no big deal for me, but it was something that she maybe didn't have access to. And it was just really neat to see, to see the kids doing that and like doubly good that it was helping not only her nonprofit, but that she was then paying that forward and helping yet another nonprofit. So that was something I'm pretty proud of. That's pretty gratifying. Yeah, oh, that's totally. really cool. That's, that's right. really cool. I'm picturing that in, in, in my head. What, a, what an amazing, that, that sounds like a really rewarding experience. I don't think I've ever, I've done some, some work for a few nonprofits, but nothing like that that involves kids or where you get to see the, the product of your work sort of in action, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it was fun. Now your kids know what to get you for Father's Day this weekend. So, oh, man. Some, some, some. No, they don't. <laughs> because I feel bad because, of course, like I have all these hobbies that are about making things, but I'm impossible to buy tools for because, first of all, I own all the tools, right, already. Not sure. really, but cl- it feels that way sometimes. Second of all, my wife has completely given up on buying me anything for the shop because she's like, oh, I, I got you a, um, you ever seen these things they like for copying moldings? They like have a bunch series of plastic fingers where you can push on it and they'll slide to, to match the profile of something. So you could use that to make like crown molding. Right? Oh, and I'm right. like, yeah, I, I actually already have three of those. <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned the kids and actually there's something that I've been doing. Again, this is documented on the, the website. This past year has been utterly crazy for everybody. Mm-hmm. One of the kind of big things for people with kids is how the school system has been. It's been really challenging year for a lot of people. And my younger daughter was pretty interested in taking what they call engineering at her middle school, which, you know, I think is essentially the equivalent of what we would have called shop, although I'm not entirely sure what the curriculum would have been. But when the pandemic hit, she's like, yeah, I'm not taking virtual shop class, right? That's just silly. She said, but you have a better shop than the school does anyway. So will you do engineering class with me like once a week? And like, yeah, of, of course. And so I dubbed it Home Eng in kind of an <laughs> echo of home, ec, home, home sure. engineering. 
and it's been super fun. We've been, so one of the things that's happened for me over the last several years is that I've really expanded the set of things that I'm interested in mm-hmm. uh, building and making. I, I used to be primarily a woodworker, but now I'm into metalworking and I've actually just bought a little furnace that I'm going to fire pottery in. So there's ceramics or pottery, I guess. I have two 3D printers, an FDM and an SLA one, so I'm into plastics. Uh, I recently came across a technique for how to work with glass, uh, not glass bowling, but cutting glass. You know, materials and techniques are, have been a thing for me. And, and so we've been like taking a tour. So we did a little woodworking project where she made a tray and then we went to the lathe. Uh, that was actually another big one for me is wood turning, which is super fun. We went to the lathe and she made a, a mechanical pencil because you can buy these kits and the it's, a, it's like a 45 minute project to go from nothing to a completely finished functional object. That was, that was really cool. And then we did a metal casting, which was neat because we 3D printed uh, a model. We went on the web and found a model. She chose a pineapple, a little pineapple. We 3D printed it. Then we cast it in silicone. And then we poured liquid metal into the molten metal, I guess I should say, into the into the mold and made a little pewter pineapple. It's a neat multi-material, multi-step process. And we're doing pottery now because I bought this little furnace. So she's got, she's made a little couple pots upstairs and we're going to try to fire those and glaze them and i don't know what else we'll do but moving around materials and trying all that stuff and it's been it's been really fun actually to do that with her and i've done some stuff with the other kid too so it's it's just been neat and what are their ages just to relatively so she's you're comfortable with her in the shop and everything else yeah the older one's 16 she'll be 17 in the fall that's coming up pretty quick and then the the younger one uh, is 13 so they're both you know of an age where i can explain safety rules to them and expect that they will understand and follow them and i felt fairly confident about her using the lathe, especially for something very small like a like a pencil, a bigger objects can be a li- carry a little bit higher risk of right. bad things happening. And then when we were doing the pewter, you know, it's still 580 degree molten metal, so there's a risk factor there. She's a solid enough kid. She's a responsible right. enough kid that I felt fine with her having her pour that and and knowing that she wasn't going to do anything stupid. Sure. Yeah, the risks can be managed. Exactly. Yeah, that's fun. There was one interesting note on that, though. When we did the um, tray, so I work a lot with hand tools. Uh, I do actually don't own, for instance, a table saw. I do own a bandsaw that I substitute in as, a, as my power, my electron munching machine that I use Faramon. And she used that quite a bit on that project. But I had this notion that we were going to use hand planes in the way mm-hmm. that I use them when I work. And as it turns out, like... I grossly underestimated the amount of upper body strength that's need, or maybe just body weight, because she's a little thing, to, to push a hand plane across a piece of wood. And so I, I wound up having to do most of that part for her, which was fine. We were still in the shop together and everything. But, but that was just an interesting lesson that, you know, so I've been trying to think more carefully, okay, what, am I going to have to modify any of the way I would usually do things in order to be able to successfully do these projects with the kids? Yeah, I uh, have yet to figure out how to get my son to engage with me on my hobbies, but uh been having a little bit more success. We bought an old boat that mm. we've fixed up a little bit. It was a really great value, nothing big or fancy, but it needed some work done to it, and I've enjoyed doing that. He wanted no part of that. He's yeah, just let me know when it's ready. <laughs> 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 and so now it is ready, and we get to, he, he does like to go out on the water with me, which is a lot of fun. It's great. But no, definitely no engine maintenance for him. He's not, he 
is not interested in that in the least bit. I've thought about it a bunch because I've I've wondered a bit, right? Like so, there's been time. You know, the home edge thing lately has been great. One of my other daughter and I, we built a, a vanity for her room, a little desk built to her dimensions, her specifications, and everything, and that was cool. A lot of the time, like I will come up from downstairs and I'm like, oh, look at this cool thing I made. And everybody's like, oh yeah, that's kind of neat, oh, but they're not super into it. Right. But I, I think back a little bit to the fact that growing up, I knew that my dad knew how to make things. And we didn't spend a lot of t- He had five kids, so I don't fault him for not having time to, right. to spend time with to meet with me on that. But even if he had said, let's go out into the shop and make something, I'm not sure I would have said yes. Right. But I feel like just being around somebody who demonstrates that objects don't fall out of the sky. They don't come yeah. from a store, that they are that they are things that are the result of a process. And that process is something that you can learn and that you can make the things that fit your life exactly and make them to a much higher level of quality than is typical for consumer goods that you get at just to pick on them because they're yeah. with a classic whipping horse, Ikea. Right. Yeah, so, no doubt. That is definitely true. Yeah, that's that's an important lesson to learn so much of what we buy today is disposable. And that's the other aspect. It's not, I I suppose that's what you're talking about when you say quality, not just fitness for purpose, but longevity as well. Yeah, that means a bunch of things, but certainly those two things as well. Yeah, I haven't figured out, you're inspiring me to get get back into the garage and clean up my work table and tinker on some stuff. I hope, I'm sure you'll, given the listenership of this podcast, I wouldn't be surprised if others had the same experience. Oh, great. Uh, that's awesome to hear. I will say I have a, a sign that I put on my shop door, and I've mentioned this, I think, in every episode of, of, of my podcast, but it says slow. It's like the, the caution sign, like the yellow street sign you'd see. Mm-hmm. And it's there to remind me that the, the goal is not to be productive in the sense of producing objects. That is the goal. Like I go in there sometimes because I want to make a thing, mm-hmm. but but that really like it is it is okay to go and spend an hour and not finish because I have a bad tendency to go in there and start rushing because I'm like, oh, I only have an hour and a half today and then I've got to do this thing. So I really want to get this done. And to just stop doing that because it makes it not fun. So I, I hope that as if you decide, first of all, only decide to go back and clean up your workbench if that is something you would have fun with. And and when you do, even if you're just cleaning it up, like to make that be an activity that you can value, that you when you're done with that, you're like, I spent an hour and I was in my shop and I was doing things that are a part of making something, even if it was putting tools away or scraping paint off of something. You know, I've just in my, for myself been trying to, to slow down, not necessarily in how I move, but in how I think about making things and how I think about what I'm doing to be more present, really, and to value the moments as they pass and not get so locked into the future. Definitely. And I think that's part of what's so rewarding about those uh, activities. It's, it, for me, the analog for me would be fishing. And it's mm. it's not the enjoyment I get from that is not limited by the number of fish that you put in the boat. It's the process of getting there and being out there, communing with nature, breathing the salt air, just things like that can, for me, make it rewarding. Whether or not you catch any fish, my wife often says, you know, it'd be cheaper to go to the grocery store and just buy a couple of fillets, Yeah, which she's not wrong, but this is the point for me. Yeah. The joke is here. Look at this thing I made. 
all it took was $2,000 worth of tools. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and materials, too. Yeah, yeah, especially wood right now, although I hear that's finally come down. Oh, good. Yeah, so a lot of things are more expensive. Now, I wonder if this is all still just you've shut down the economy and lo and behold, it takes time to restart it again. Yeah, I actually read a real, there's a really interesting newsletter I subscribe to. Actually, Kevin Lina, who was mm-hmm. a guest on the Cognicast way back when, a lot of people from Closure will know him, pointed mm-hmm. out, and he has a newsletter that's really cool, pointed out another newsletter in it called Construction Physics, which is a really interesting newsletter where the author, I don't know anything about them, talks about the, the economics of building buildings. And it's fascinating because this person will actually put in graphs that show various dimensions and like that position various materials like steel is very very high cost but very high longevity and what does that mean for the economics of building a building and there'll be analysis for instance of these you see these videos of these factories where they prefab portions of a house and then they take it someplace and they just slap the walls together nail it together and you have a house and that seems like it should be like the way the only way we do houses but why that actually isn't true it's just super interesting Oh, I'm definitely going to look into that. That's right up my alley. That reminded me, I saw a video recently about construction materials and concrete and how it's good at bearing certain kind of forces, but not others. And then that's why you, you get the rebar inserted into it. And it's like the best of both worlds because the concrete can absorb certain forces like compression forces or maybe it's the other way, but, but not no, bending con- forces. Concrete is really good in compression and absolutely terrible in tension. Yes. Yeah. So that was a really interesting video. Oh, I could talk to you about this stuff all day long. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm Me too. G- getting smarter just sitting here. Fun. So kicking it over back to you about, well, actually the, the thing I was referring to earlier when I said your kids know what to get you for Father's Day, I meant the art. They can just, oh yeah. Yeah. Make you a little piece of art that you'll treasure. Yeah, that's a, yeah, no, actually my uh, 16-year-old in particular, I mean, they both have, I've been really impressed by the the things that they've done, but the 16-year-old in particular is interested in, in drawing and painting. And she did a really cool, it was for our anniversary, I think last year, she took a picture that we had from an important anniversary that we'd had in Hawaii, and she painted it. Like she did a painting of the picture. It's super oh, wow. cool. It's, it's really good. She's really very good at, at that. She's a quite impressive visual artists. They really, they both are. They have different disciplines that they're into, but mm-hmm. uh, like the younger one is a, a really actually quite amazing baker. She will routinely go down to the kitchen and bang out some cookie or bar or whatever, and you eat it, you're like, this is better than anything I've ever bought in a store. So <laughs> they're makers that's, too in their own way. Yeah, that's really neat. Is she inclined to do that for pursue that as a career? Well, you know, I think at 13, she's not really thinking along those lines yet. And uh, I've certainly never heard her say anything like that. So we'll see. I'm just going to enjoy the uh, output in the meantime. <laughs> well, no doubt. The best food is it, it somehow when somebody makes you a meal, it, it often tastes better than yeah, what yeah. you make for yourself. For sure. Cool. Craig, it's been a blast talking to you today. Yeah, likewise. I'm glad we had a chance to catch up. I think it's been too long since we got to see each other. Or totally. Talk. This was a ton of fun for me. So thank you again. Absolutely. No, my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. It's been fun to talk. I definitely wish you a ton of success with the podcast as long as you feel like doing it, right? As long as it's fun. I will definitely be on the lookout for the new content. I can't wait to go watch that new video you put up today. 
So cool. I'm going to ask you for a piece of parting advice if you'd like to share. Yeah, absolutely. So this is one that I actually did think about beforehand. It was only today, but I still did. So my piece of advice actually touches a little bit on something we said earlier. And my advice is for people to start meditating if you're not already. This is a practice that I've picked up in the last year and a half. It was in response to some pretty serious stress that I was under, and it has been very helpful. I would encourage people to try it because... So first of all, I didn't really know what it was about. Like I had some probably fairly stereotypical associations that were not really right. I'm not going to try to really give a deep explanation of what it is or what it's for or whatever, but I will describe it briefly as it's basically about paying attention to right now for a yeah. little while and being nice to yourself when you inevitably don't do that. So one thing I would say is if you do start meditating, be aware that you will feel like you are really bad at it because the, and that's the, the reason for that is the reason that I suggest people do this. We spend naturally spend a lot of time mentally that's not here and now it's, we're thinking about the future. We're thinking about the past. We're actually quite often thinking about something that's neither the future nor the past. I mean, it's the future, I guess it's a potential future, but we all have within us this voice that for whatever reason, I suppose there's probably an evolutionary explanation, mm -hmm. but its job is to tell us that something bad is going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh my God, I'm going to go into work tomorrow and that bug's still not going to be fixed. Or, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to go home and the kids are going to be off the walls and homework's not going to be done. And I'm going to be up late because I've got to do taxes, whatever. And that voice is pretty much constant. And I think, I, I, I don't think that as software engineers, we are particularly prone to that. I think everybody is subject to that. But I think a thing that I found for me is that software is a bit of a vector for that because we spend a lot of time having to be in an imaginary world. I'm sure you've experienced this. I think every programmer, every software engineer has experienced, like you basically have to make these mental pictures in your mind and go mm -hmm. and inhabit them intensely and we so live in our heads exactly and you have to it's part yeah. of the you, you can't be good and not do that but i i find that i it becomes very easy for me to go do that and to occupy these worlds that aren't the here and the now and that are oftentimes much more negative than the here and the now and it may be the case that something bad actually is going to happen like i am going to have to do my taxes tonight but i right. don't have to live in that dread right now. And so meditation, which for me is just sitting quietly and it, it's hard to describe until you've done it, right? Like just being right. here and now, not thinking about the future, not imagining what's going on elsewhere in the house or whatever, and just doing that for a few minutes a day. And the, the key skill that it is, has given me, and I'm still not an expert on this by any stretch, but the tool that it's given me that I've gotten better at is that when I start to go elsewhere to the future to the past being able Catch to notice that, that metacognition yeah. is the term right that you might have right. heard yeah. and so it's awesome and it's super easy while also being super hard like i said you'll if you've never done it before you will do it and you will sit down for 10 minutes and maybe twice for 10 seconds you will actually not be thinking about something else that's yeah. okay you'll get better and it really does help so i don't know yeah. maybe that's a very concrete bit of advice but it's been helpful for me i think that's wonderful yeah i think also, it's sometimes branded as mindfulness training or whatever, right, but right. I actually have tried it a bit with a 10% happier, I think is the name of the app. There's a few really good meditation yeah. apps, but totally that does become a superpower to be able to notice when you're not directing your consciousness where you want it to be directed. Right. 
Right. right. Yeah. Super cool. That is a great piece of advice. Thanks again, Craig. It's my pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's definitely mine. But yeah, we'll see you on the interwebs. So to all our listeners, thank you very much. And this has been another episode of the Cognicast. See you next time. Our host this week was Christian Romney, who is at Christian Romney, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-R-O-M-N-E-Y on Twitter. Episode cover art is by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio. The Cognicast is produced by Jarrett Benford and Robert Randolph. The intro music is Crazy G, played by Russ Olson. The outro music is by Nasca at nascamusic.com. I'm Robert Randolph. Please stay safe and healthy out there, and thanks for listening to The Cognicast.